0: Welcome to the primary ride home for Wednesday, June 5th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, a look at Buttigieg's plan to change the Supreme Court, Warren's plan for economic patriotism, and Biden releases his climate plan. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, among several Democratic candidates, wants to overhaul the Supreme Court. He's the candidate who has talked about this issue the most, and has the most detailed plan for it. In an interview, he told NBC News, quote, We've got to get out of where we are right now, where any time there is an opening, there is an apocalyptic ideological firefight. It harms the court, it harms the country, and it leads to outcomes like what we have right now. End quote. And one more line from that article here. Quote, Buttigieg has said structural democratic reform would be his top priority vowing to launch a commission on depoliticizing the Supreme Court on his first day as president, end quote. And here's an audio snippet from a longer answer on Fox News in which Buttigieg is being interviewed by Chris Wallace. This gets at the core thing Buttigieg wants to do. Listen in.
1: There are other ideas that have been floated, too, about Term limits or about rotating justices up from the appellate bench. I think we should have a national debate about what's appropriate, especially within the framework of the Constitution. But the bottom line is we've got to make some kind of structural form to depoliticize the Supreme Court.
0: And honestly, that is a common position, maybe even a bipartisan one. According to NBC News, roughly 60 percent of Americans think the Supreme Court nomination process has become too partisan. So, the real question is, what can we do about this? Well, first, a brief history lesson. Over the centuries, the U.S. has not always had a nine-member Supreme Court. The original number was 6, then that grew to 7, then 9, then 10, before bumping back down to 7 because everybody hated Andrew Johnson. Anyway, in 1869, that number went back up to 9, and efforts to change it since then have failed. Let's talk about one very notable effort initiated by a president. In 1937, FDR tried to increase the number of justices to a maximum of 15, proposing that justices who hit age 70 and a half, yes, really, he wanted the age to be precisely 70 years and six months, should essentially be forced to retire, or he'd just add another justice if they didn't. His hope there was to change the conservative court so it would be more sympathetic to his New Deal programs. But even fellow Democrats didn't love that idea, and many did not back it because they saw it as a slippery slope. Like if FDR added six new justices, why wouldn't the next president just add seven more? This was a big blow for FDR, and nobody has really touched the issue since then. Okay, so there is a ton of other interesting history behind all the other changes, but that's not the point for today. The point is, we have a rich tradition of fiddling around with that number of justices, though for the last century and a half, we have had that number locked in, and the FDR story is a cautionary tale. So, what does Buttigieg want to do? Well, he is open to options, but the main proposal he's backing would increase the court to 15 justices. Yep. However, in the plan he backs right now, it's not the FDR thing, though that number sure sounds familiar. Listen to this clip from back on March 8th from an interview on the TV show For the Record, which airs on WHBF-TV. The interviewer, Jim Needleman, speaks first. Listen in.
2: You're somewhat of a policy wonk, and you said the current democracy is warped. I think I read a quote saying, saying that. And that as
0: you placing democratic reforms as your priority if elected to overturn Citizens United, get rid of the Electoral College, and to create something in what you call a more depoliticized Supreme Court. So that would, would you mean... Does that mean you would pursue constitutional amendments on all these things?
1: Potentially, although uh, interestingly, you don't have to revise the Constitution to change the makeup of the court to something that's more balanced. A lot of people might assume that it's in the Constitution, for example, that we have nine justices. It's not. And right. the number of justices has fluctuating over the between years. six and ten. Uh, I think there are reforms that we could undertake that would make the Supreme Court less of an apocalyptic ideological battle every time that there's a nomination. Well, how it. do you accomplish what you want for the Supreme Court, and what do you want for well, one way that you could do it, and again, I think we need to open the debate rather than saying, you know, I'm walking in in March of 2019 with all the answers, but one solution that could work would be to have 15 justices and only 10 15. of them appointed on a political basis. The other five would be rotated up from the appellate bench, and they would have to be justices that the other 10 could agree on. It takes the politics out of would it. Would they be lifetime appointments still at that point? If you're talking about a rotation? Uh, well, no, you would you would rotate them in and out. Um, or but the other 10 would do be lifetime appointments. Yeah, or you could do it with term limits. Again, I don't think it's about having everything fully articulated on the way in. I think it's about opening up a subject that we've just considered closed for the last hundred years or so. Same with the way the districts are drawn. I mean, how can you not say that our politics is warped if so many districts across America are drawn in such a way that politicians are choosing their voters instead of the other way around? That's why our politics is so out of whack in so many ways, especially in the U.S. House, we with where the American people actually fall.
0: Okay, so I feel like the details of that 15-person plan are not easy to follow there, so I'm going to read from the NBC News article here to explain it in their terms. Quote, Under the plan, most justices would continue serving life terms. Five would be affiliated with the Republican Party, and five with the Democratic Party. Those ten would then join together to choose five additional justices from U.S. appeals courts or possibly the district-level trial courts. They'd have to settle on the non-political justices unanimously, or at least with a strong supermajority. The final five would serve one-year, non-renewable terms. They'd be chosen two years in advance to prevent nominations based on anticipated court cases, and if the ten partisan justices couldn't agree on the final five, the Supreme Court would be deemed to lack a quorum and couldn't hear cases that term. End quote. Okay, so this plan comes from an upcoming paper to be published in the Yale Law Journal. But the weird thing about it is that Buttigieg's stated intent is to reduce partisanship on the court. Yet, the plan he likes best explicitly labels two-thirds of the justices as belonging to one of two political parties. While that is kind of true today, it's not always the case. The party of the nominating president does not always dictate the votes of a given justice. And that's kind of the point of the Supreme Court. It's supposed to be an independent judiciary branch of our government. That is why the executive branch appoints justices and they're approved by the legislative branch. That system is designed without specific partisan requirements. Yeah, today the outcome is often partisan, but partisanship has been seen as a problem on the court for a very long time. Remember, FDR was trying to change the political makeup of that court back in 1937. Anyway, back to the Buttigieg Plan. There are some potential problems with this specific approach. U.S. law allows a change to the number of justices under the existing system just by passing a law, so if you had a president and a willing Congress, you could just change that number. The biggest challenge here with this specific 15-justice plan is that it may be unconstitutional. Legal scholars disagree there, but again, reading from NBC, quote, Others say that the whole plan would violate the Appointments Clause of the Constitution, which says Supreme Court justices are chosen by the President, not by fellow justices. End quote. So at the end of the day, the story here is that Buttigieg wants to change the court in some way, and he's leaning toward one plan. Listen for this issue to be picked up by other candidates. The same plan has been mentioned by O'Rourke, for example, as a possible debate topic coming up. Oh, by the way, quick breaking news note, just as I hop into the recording booth, I see that O'Rourke is now calling for term limits on the Supreme Court, among other things. I will catch you up on all of that on the show tomorrow. Okay, it's time to commit.
2: And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: Yesterday, Senator Elizabeth Warren released her latest policy plan titled A Plan for Economic Patriotism. She cites economic patriotism as a new campaign theme, and it's a very interesting development in the way that Warren speaks about economic issues. I think the headline to an article by Eric Levitz in New York Magazine sums it up nicely. Quote, Warren's economic patriotism plan beats Trump at his own game. End quote. Wait, what? We're doing Trump stuff now? Um, okay. Strap yourselves in. We are going on a journey of both policy and language. So in this new proposal, Warren puts a giant stake in the ground right up front. She basically says, look, I'm a patriot, I'm an American, I come from a family of veterans, America matters to me. And then she starts calling out American companies, specifically Levi's, Dixon, Ticonderoga, the pencil people, and General Electric, saying, quote, These, quote-unquote, American companies show only one real loyalty, to the short-term interests of their shareholders, a third of whom are foreign investors. If they can close up an American factory and ship jobs overseas to save a nickel, that's exactly what they will do, abandoning loyal American workers and hollowing out American cities along the way. Politicians love to say they care about American jobs. But for decades, those same politicians have cited free market principles and refused to intervene in markets on behalf of American workers. And, of course, they ignore those same supposed principles and intervene regularly to protect the interests of multinational corporations and international capital. End quote. Okay, what Warren is doing here is making a leftist appeal to the American working class, but she's doing it by waving a giant linguistic American flag in the way that Republicans have been doing in recent political history. She is saying in the quote I just read that Republicans have been talking out of both sides of their mouths. Her core point is that key government policies, like, say, the strong dollar policy, have direct effects on Americans and their jobs. A strong dollar means Americans can buy cheap Chinese goods, for instance. It also means Chinese consumers can't afford American products. And the strong dollar, along with many other policies, mean that the government is basically incentivizing the very thing politicians claim to be against. Like, you know, moving jobs overseas, for instance. This is a lot like what Senator Bernie Sanders has been saying for years now, but the language she's using here is super important. This could be a turning point for Warren, because she is using the language we typically hear from Republicans, but she is delivering a liberal message. For instance, listen to this bit. Quote, If Washington wants to put a stop to this, it can. If we want faster growth, stronger American industry, and more good American jobs, then our government should do what other leading nations do and act aggressively to achieve those goals instead of catering to the financial interests of companies with no particular allegiance to America. It's not a question of more government or less government, it's about who government works for. End quote. Now, that line about allegiance to America is something that sounds very Republican, right? Like, okay, here's a quote that Levitz pulled from a candidate three years ago in Pittsburgh. I'm going to tell you who said this after I read it. I want you to think about the language here and who might say it. And again, it's a 2016 election, so there's maybe three-ish possible people who could have been saying this. Anyway, quote, Globalization has made the financial elite who donate to politicians very wealthy, but it has left millions of our workers with nothing but poverty and heartache. This is not some natural disaster. It is a politician-made disaster. End quote. Okay, so who said that line? Who, three years ago, explicitly called out globalization and appealed to American workers living in poverty? That was Donald Trump. Now again, Levitz points out a line from Warren in her proposal that seems to rhyme with that. Quote, Globalization isn't some mysterious force whose effects are inevitable and beyond our control. No, America chose to pursue a trade policy that prioritized the interests of capital over the interests of American workers. End quote. Now, okay, yeah, Warren is using more complex words there, but the sentiment definitely sounds familiar. In her policy, she uses the word aggression a lot, which I read as a muscular word. Check out this line from her proposal. Quote, if we can aggressively intervene in markets to protect the interests of the wealthy and well-connected, as we have for decades with bailouts and subsidies, then we can damn well use all the tools at our disposal to protect the interests of American workers. End quote. And here's where it gets really interesting. Her proposals are the kind of green, liberal things you would expect. I'm going to read from yesterday's New York Times here. Quote, As president, she would invest $2 trillion in climate-friendly industries over a decade, create a new cabinet-level Department of Economic Development, and even manipulate the dollar to promote exports. End quote. As the Times points out, Warren is suggesting the same end goal that Trump has, but she's not achieving it using tariffs. Instead, she's doing it with other economic policies, and she is tying climate change and renewable investment to American job growth. Reading again from the New York Times, quote, The investment plan includes a Green Apollo plan that would create a National Institutes of Clean Energy a green industrial mobilization that would push federal spending toward American-made renewable energy technology, and a green Marshall Plan that would promote those products abroad. The programs would largely be paid for through corporate tax increases, a campaign aide said, and would include provisions that prioritized investments in historically marginalized communities and provided benefits for fossil fuel workers, end quote. So check out the policy in the show notes. It is pretty long at 10 pages. And watch this space as Democratic primary candidates learn to speak Republican. This is going to get fun. Okay, so last up today, Joe Biden announced his climate plan two hours before Warren released her plan that we just talked about. Anyway, in a big surprise, Biden's plan embraces the Green New Deal. I'm going to read a tweet by Jeff Stein, who wrote about the plan for The Washington Post. This is his summary. Quote, Biden climate plan, $1.7 trillion in new spending paid for by reversing GOP tax cuts, target of net zero emissions by 2050, embraces Green New Deal framework, end to fossil fuel subsidies, ban on oil and gas permits on public lands on day one. End quote. Biden, at the top of his proposal, does include a video, and I'm going to play a snippet of the sound from that in a moment. And I want you to listen to this in the context of what we just heard from Warren. I think you can hear a transition in this clip from the first part being typical democratic climate messaging, and then nearer the end, waving that big rhetorical American flag. If you actually watch the video, and there is a link in the show notes, the visuals are all about workers. He's showing American workers, manufacturing, all that stuff. Okay, so listen in.
2: So today I'm announcing my plan for a clean energy revolution. It outlines what we have to do to meet this challenge head on and how we're going to get there. We're going to invest $1.7 trillion in securing our future so that by 2050, the United States will be 100% clean energy economy with net zero emissions. And by the end of my first term, we will have an enforcement mechanism in place to make sure we stay on track to get there. Now, we're going to make record-breaking investments in research and development zero-carbon technologies so that America is the engine of the world's clean energy economy exporting cutting-edge equipment stamped Made in the USA to help other nations reduce emissions and mitigate and adapt. This initiative will create more than 10 million new good-paying jobs all across the clean economy in the United States of America. It's an enormous opportunity. We'll hold polluters accountable for the damage they've caused, particularly in low-income communities and communities of color not only due to climate change but the pollution they are pumping into the air that is breathed and the water that is drunk in those communities you know we're not going to forget the workers either the workers who through dangerous and back-breaking labor powered our industrial rise mined and built our arsenal of democracy and fueled america's prosperity through the 20th century they've earned our thanks our respect and our support finally we have to bring the world along with us Global action requires American leadership, but the United States only accounts for 15% of global carbon emissions. The rest of the world has to step up as well. So on day one, I will immediately rejoin the Paris Climate Accord, but that's not sufficient. We need to dramatically accelerate our worldwide effort to meet the intensity of the challenge we face. So I'll immediately get to work, leading a diplomatic initiative to get every nation to go beyond their initial commitment, to push our progress further and faster. This is especially true for China by far the world's largest emitter of carbon. We will not only hold their leaders accountable for reducing carbon output at home in their country, but make sure they stop financing billions of dollars of dirty fossil fuel projects all across Asia. And this will allow us to keep creating good paying jobs right here at home, even as we raise our own standards. America, once again, will be able to stand proudly on the world stage and challenge every other nation to follow our example and our leadership.
0: Reading Biden's actual plan, which I'm going to admit to you I didn't get through all 50 pages of, there is a lot there. A lot of his messaging is about what he did as vice president on climate issues, but that is precisely what you would expect to hear from somebody who had that VP job for eight years. The policy is filled with photos of Biden talking to people in national parks and in other natural settings over the years. This is a detailed plan. It's no Jay Inslee, you know, book-length thing but it is full of specific proposals and in some cases, specific ways to pay for them. There's a little of everything in here, like electric cars and new railroads and foreign policy and infrastructure investments for plumbing and protections for coal communities and carbon capture and increased efficiency standards for appliances and on and on and on. It is a substantial proposal, and it demonstrates that even Biden, who is viewed as something of a centrist in this field, is taking climate change very seriously as an issue. Now, the final part of the story is that just after Biden's plan came out, journalists found that some passages in it were lifted from other sources without attribution. This is a potential problem for Biden, who dropped his presidential bid in 1988 after accusations of plagiarism. Today, though, he is not dropping out. The campaign said these were inadvertent omissions and updated the policy to credit the sources. There's a link to a story about all that stuff in the show notes at the bottom, along with the actual policy and several analyses of it. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. So, I asked yesterday for y'all to give the show a shout-out on social media, and boy did you deliver. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and I love hearing the little personal notes as well. I'm going to keep making the show as long as you keep listening. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow.